um, and that you would speak through Brad in a way that convicts us and, and really helps us to understand the depth of these passage. Amen. 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 Thank you, Josh. I'm excited to continue our series, which we've called A New Way to Live, and we're working through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 to 7, if you're just joining us for the first time tonight, and uh, you're picking up about two-thirds of the way through our 19 weeks, but uh, we're jumping into the beginning of chapter 7 tonight, so we have a small kind of fresh beginning. And for the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us, we've been talking about possessions and how we handle money and possessions and the tension that we are called to live with between greed on the one side where we, where we want and desire too much and we allow our hearts to, to long after too much stuff and worry on the other side where we worry that we're not going to have enough and the line that Jesus calls us to walk down the middle in trust and contentment. But as we get to chapter 7, Jesus takes a bit of a, a drastic turn. He begins to say maybe something that's some of the, some of the most well-known words Jesus has ever said. Perhaps some of the most well-known words that he's ever said that for those outside the church. This idea of don't judge me. How many of you have heard that phrase before? How often does that land up in your conversations? You, you're in a conversation with some friends. You're busy chatting about some stuff. And just before they tell you something that's a little bit out there, they're like, look, don't judge me, but... And then we launch into the thing that you're probably going to judge them for, right? These are some of Jesus' most well-known words, judge not lest you be judged. And uh, yeah, that, that, we, we're all very familiar with that, with that idea. The problem is sometimes, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but, but especially for those outside the church and sometimes even inside the church, people can look at Christians and they can say, you know what, you guys, you're actually quite hypocritical. And you often carry this kind of holier-than-thou attitude where you get to stand up on a stage, a proverbial stage, and look down at people and kind of hold them to a standard and a level and, and think less of people because you're kind of judging them. I mean, hopefully you don't do that, right? But, but people often think that of Christians, and sometimes, sometimes that's fair. Sometimes that's fairly, a fair way to describe the church, which is a really terrible and unfortunate thing. And here Jesus says, as he begins to instruct his disciples in the chapter 7, he starts with, don't judge or you will be judged. And, and we need to ask, we need to ask what, what, what's Jesus all about? So this evening we're going to explore just this little phrase and the little story that Jesus attaches to it. And we're going to try and understand how disciples in God's community are supposed to interact together with one another and how this whole thing of judging one another is supposed to work. Right, so we're going to talk a little bit about um, what Jesus is saying here. We're going to talk about the type of judgment that he's speaking about. We're going to talk about how it fits in with some of the other sections of Scripture. And I'm going to have to do that a little bit quickly, or we're going to be here for quite some time. And then we're going to try real hard as a people to try and not be hypocritical in the way in which we live as we follow Jesus. So let's, let's jump in. Jump in, and we're going to jump in just to, to the word that Jesus uses here. Obviously, this was written in Greek, and the Greek word for the judge is the Greek word krino, and it means this. It means to separate or to distinguish, to, to come to a choice or to a decision or to reach a verdict. It has this idea of to pick out or to choose by separating one from the other, right? And it typically is used in a legal context in the determination of right and wrong. That's, that's what the word Jesus is using here means. What we need to catch out of that is when Jesus is speaking here, he's speaking about how you use the word judge in a kind of everyday context. He's talking about what, what you do and how you, how you evaluate evidence and information in order to make a decision. 
That's, that's what he's speaking about. He's not speaking about an eternal judgment or a judgment toward condemnation. Right? We're going we're gonna to look at that in a moment. We're going to see James talk about that. But that's actually not what he's talking about. He's talking about those everyday evaluations and decisions that we do every day. And it seems a bit strange. I don't, maybe it doesn't seem strange to you, but it would be quite strange if Jesus said, look, guys, I want you to live without making any kind of critical evaluation. Like that, that would be quite weird. Right? I don't know. Yeah, let's not go into what that could look like. But I think that would be a bad idea. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I'm going to attempt to persuade you that that's not what he's talking about. All right, so let's jump in a little bit. Let's have a look at four other passages in the New Testament that help inform us with a slightly bigger picture of the idea of judging one another and how that operates inside a discipleship community. James chapter 4, from verse 11 to 12, says this. James is writing, and he says, Brothers, do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law, and he actually judges the law. But if you judge the law, then, then you're not a doer of the law, but you've become a judge of the law. And the thing is, there is only one lawgiver, and there's only one judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This would seem to agree with what Jesus has said here in Matthew 7 about us not judging one another. But if you, if you have a look at what he's saying here, what you'll notice is that the idea of judgment being conveyed in this passage is actually about a judgment that assumes the place of God. It assumes the place of God who is the only judge. He is the lawgiver and it's, only, it's his role to determine who, who is saved and who is destroyed. That's, that's a role that God alone plays. And so if you, and again, if you interrogate the Greek, which we're not going to do here because we've got four passages to do this with, and we might be here a long time if we did that. But this idea, the word judge here carries the idea of a judgment towards condemnation. What James is writing is saying, he's saying, brothers and sisters, what you need to be so careful of is when you look at a brother or sister among you, you don't, don't assume to know what God knows. Don't assume to put yourself in the place of God where you can look at someone and say, you know what, if you're doing that, you're definitely not saved. Or you definitely are not going to heaven. You must be a terrible person. Saying if you're doing that, you're speaking evil against your brother or your sister. And that is not what I'm calling you to do inside the kingdom. That's the context in which James is speaking. That's the idea of judgment that's called there. We're not to take God's place and assume someone's eternal destiny. There's another passage in the New Testament that speaks about judgment. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this section, Paul is writing to the church and he's addressing a particular problem. There's some like serious sexual immorality that's begun to crop up in the Corinthian church. And he begins to write about it and it's like a really awkward situation. And then he says to them, guys, you need to be careful that when you're in church together, you don't associate with people who call themselves Christians and they continue to engage in blatant, unrepentant sin. And he goes on quite a list of all the kind of ways in which we as, as people that profess to be Christians can engage in this blatant, unrepentant sin. And he says, if you're doing that, there's a real problem there. And then he says this into that context. And he says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. And when he's speaking about judge here, he's, he's saying you need to be able to be aware of what people are doing and you need to be able to reach a conclusion of whether what they are doing is sinful or whether what they are doing is righteous. That's the distinction of judgment that he's talking about here. It's a normal kind of distinction. It's being able to see and evaluate and understand, is this something sinful? Is this something righteous? And then he says, when, when, you, when you do this, you need to recognize this is not something we as Christians are told to do to the world. 
We're not to be the moral police to society and tell the world how they should act. But there is a role that we carry within a discipleship community where we are called to help one another live in righteousness and not in sinfulness. That's what he's busy saying to the Corinthian church, and that's how the word judge is used there. Third example I want to show you is from, is from John, and this is Jesus again. Jesus is now talking to the Pharisees. And, of course, Jesus was, uh, he was the kind of guy that didn't really get caught up in uh, people's expectations of him. And so one day he's gone up to Jerusalem, and they're having the Festival of Booths. It was one of the annual festivals that the Jewish people celebrated. And uh, Jesus is up there, and he encounters a guy that's sick and, needs, and is in need of healing. And because Jesus is God, and because he is good, and because he has compassion on people, and he sees this guy who's ill, he decides to heal him because that's what he does. And the man gets healed, and it's a wonderful miracle, and everyone's excited about it, except for a group of people called the Pharisees, right? the religious leaders of the day. And they're all upset with Jesus because, uh, unbeknown to Jesus, he healed them on the Sabbath. Okay, he probably knew, right? But he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't allow that to factor into his decision of whether or not he should heal someone. And for them to heal someone on the Sabbath was a terrible thing because God said, don't work on the Sabbath. And so clearly healing someone must be work, and you've now done a terrible thing by healing someone on the Sabbath. So they all come before Jesus and have this big argument. They begin to accuse him of being a terrible person, of being a blasphemer, of being someone who's against God because of what he's done now on the Sabbath. And Jesus says this to him. He says, you need to stop judging by mere appearances. But instead, you need to judge correctly. I want you to notice what's happening. They've made a judgment about what Jesus has done, and they've said, what you've done is sinful, not righteous. Right? And Jesus says, no, what you've done is you've judged me, but you haven't seen the heart. You haven't seen the truth. You've only seen what's happening on the outside. And you don't understand, but you've judged incorrectly. And you have judged without righteousness. There's a call that Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here that, that when you are judging someone, you need to be, make sure that your judgment is righteous. That it, that it doesn't just, isn't just based on observable surface level, incomplete information. It needs, to be done, it needs to be done in the way in which God would make the judgment. It needs to be following the, the truth that, that God would reveal to you. It needs to understand what true righteousness is, what the true heart of the Father is, and make a decision in light of that. That's how we're called to make judgments. Finally, I want to show you Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. And, and precursor, the word judge doesn't appear in this passage, right? But the idea is here. And Paul is writing to the Galatian church, and he's about to finish his letter. He's just spoken about living by the Spirit and not living in the flesh. And, and then he says this, and he says, now, uh, Brothers and sisters, if, if there is a believer among you who is overcome by some sin, those of you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And as you do that, you need to be careful not to fall into that same temptation yourself. As I said, the word judge isn't in here. But I want to ask you this question. How, how is it possible for us to do this command if we aren't able to make judgments? How is it possible for us to recognize that someone has been overcome by sin? And that, that someone who is godly needs to be able to come alongside them and gently and humbly lift them out of that space and help them to move on and to, to process through these things. See, if Jesus is saying you can't, you can't use judgment to make the right decision, then it's impossible to do this. And so 
as I look at these passages of Scripture, Jesus must mean something else when he says, do not judge or you will be judged. There must be something else, that, a nuance to that idea that we need to hear from him. And so I want to suggest to you, and we're going to go about interrogating this together, I want to suggest to you that when Jesus says, do not judge or you will be judged, I want to suggest that what he means is, do not judge poorly. Do not judge unrighteously, but instead judge correctly, like he said to the Pharisees. All right, let's have a look at uh, the actual words that Jesus says. Let's unpack them together, um, and then we'll go from there. All right, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. All right, here, here's the principle. Jesus lays it out in verse 1, then he immediately qualifies it in verse 2. That's that nice little word for over there. Right? It's there for a reason, and it gives you the reason that Jesus makes the statement. And Jesus makes the statement because he wants his disciples to understand that there's a principle about life in the kingdom that is behind what he's saying and that they need to catch it. See, I can kind of picture him coming up to his disciples and saying, guys, you know, here's the thing. Here's what you guys don't know. You have this problem. You're walking around and you're carrying this judgmental attitude as a part of how you're living. But I need to let you know that if you continue to do that, that this is not really going to work out very well for you in the end. Because here's the thing, the way in which you're judging others right now, the way in which you're actually doing that, it's going to be the, the way my Father is going to judge you one day. And, and the standard, the standard that you set for others, my Father is going to hold you to the same standard. And I think you might find that his application is maybe a little bit less generous than yours. I don't know if you've ever had like one of those self-critical reflective moments where, where you, know you've, you know you've made a judgment on someone else about how inconsiderate or frustrating or annoying or whatever they may have been. And then at some point later, you had an introverted moment and you began to think about how you thought about that other person. You realize, you know what, I actually kind of do that too sometimes. We tend, we tend to have this ability to rationalize our own behavior and to hold other people to a standard that's higher than what we're actually able to achieve ourselves. Jesus says, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this because you're my disciples, and I, I really care about you. I, I want you to know. I want you to know that if you don't change, if nothing happens, if this continues, one day there's going to be a reckoning. One day there's going to be a time where my Father is going to be seated on the throne, and you're going to have to come before Him, and you're going to have to answer and everything that you have spoken in the dark is going to be shouted from the rooftops. And God is going to call you to give an account, and you're going to have to answer his questions. Do you guys remember how that went for Job? Right? The, Jewish, the Jewish disciples of Jesus remember how that went for Job because they knew the Old Testament. And they knew that Job, though he was a righteous man, spent a long time asking God to justify what had happened to him. And eventually Job got his moment in the sun. He got his day. He came before the Lord. And he was ready to interrogate God and say, God, what's going on? And God starts and begins to ask Job some questions. Job has nothing to say. He's got no answer. And Jesus is trying to key his disciples into this idea. He's like, guys, I, I need you to know that one day when you come and you stand before the Father and you think everything's going to go so well with you, there's a problem. I don't think you're even going to be able to pass your own standard, let alone the standard that my Father is going to set for you. He's warning his disciples because he cares for them. We need to hear that same warning. 
We need to hear that because so quickly we make snap judgments in our minds about people, about the truth or untruth of a situation, about what's going on. Sometimes we can hear one side of the story and think we know it all. I mean, I, I don't know how many of you have ever done this. I, um, I remember going to a friend's bachelor's, and when you go to a bachelor's, there are, there are groups of friends from different circles that always attend a particular bachelor. So you and your friend circle are there because you know your friend through one space, but then his family friends are there and his other friends are there from his other niche groups, and there's like three or four different circles that tend to come together depending on you know, how extroverted your friend is. And, uh, and you get together, and so now all of you may know some other people, but you don't always know everyone. And I remember going to one of my mate's bachelors, and there was this guy there, and his hair was super slick, and it was gelled, and it was like just so, and he had his sweet uh, shades on, his Oakleys were just there, and his clothes were stylish, and I looked at this guy, and I thought, you know, you and I are not really the same, we're not really going to have a lot to talk about, we're kind of in different circles, and you know, that's cool, I'm just going to avoid you for my part, because you know, I don't really like that, and and so that, that was the decision I made, that was the judgment I made in that moment, right? And of course, God has a sense of humor, and he likes to, to help us with our own sinfulness. And uh, so one part of the bachelors was uh, we, we got together at a restaurant, and we were all sitting down at the restaurant. And of course, you know, who sits opposite Brad? But the guy that Brad thinks he can never talk to. And of course, as we begin to chat, I begin to realize, man, this guy is so normal. And he's so just like everyone else that I know. And he's carrying stuff, and I'm carrying stuff. And we're able to talk, and we have this fantastic conversation. I never thought I could possibly have because I thought he was too cool for me. All right. So many stories. We've got, we've got some wonderful neighbors, and, uh, and they really love their motor vehicles. They love the way in which they get around from one place to another. You know? And so, so if they get a really nice car, they want the whole neighborhood to know how wonderful the car is. And so the fact that they're only 20 meters from the stop street to the next stop street doesn't mean I can't get to 5,000 RPM from the one place to the other. Right? It doesn't matter that it's 2 o'clock in the morning. I just want everyone to know that I have a wonderful car and drive it really well. We have, we have quite a lot of those moments. It's really easy. It's really easy to judge someone. It's really easy to be offended and frustrated by what we perceive to be people's selfishness, and it may be. But how, how often do we properly interrogate what we, what we choose to think, what we choose to believe, what, what we read or what we hear from others? How, or how often do we allow that to simply just, we hear it and we make a judgment on it immediately? How easily and how often do we perhaps judge from appearances without making a righteous judgment, a correct judgment? It's a warning for us to consider. And Jesus says to his disciples and he says to us that we ignore that warning at our peril. We ignore that at our peril. And so he continues with his disciples. He's just kind of getting warmed up. And he says to them in verse 3, he says, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't even notice the log that's in your own eye? This is like, this is like a slamming indictment on his own disciples. Again, this is not the Pharisees. Eh? He's, not, he's not speaking to the evil, the bad religious leaders that were so out of touch with what God was doing. He's speaking to the guys that are following him, the guys that are around with him. And these words, they're loaded with intentional hyperbole, with the intentional exaggeration. Hello. When we, read, when we read the word log here, right, this is the Greek word dokon, it, actually, it refers to a plank or a beam that, that is typically used in the construction of a roofing truss. 
don't know if any of you have ever done like Habitat for Humanity or, or you've built some homes or you've been around and you've seen a roofing truss is a long piece of wood. And we're talking four or five meters long. It's, you know, it's, about this, it's, it's a big piece of wood. Right? And Jesus is, is using this and he's trying to be intentionally ridiculous so that they'll, they'll understand something. But there, there's a few things I want us to notice before we even understand why he's being ridiculous. The first thing I want us to notice is, is Jesus doesn't say there is a potential sin that you need to be careful of and I just want to warn you about what you might stumble into. He, he, he says, why are you, why are you looking? Why, why, are you, why are you actually doing this thing? You're already doing it. You're already doing it. There's, you've, you, the verb here to look is active. It says you're making a practice of looking, of searching for something. And that, and that goes with the, with the, second, the second idea here. It says there's not a neutral motive. It's not like you were casually walking by and happened to notice some things. There's two different verbs here, to look and to notice. The idea of looking is that active thing. You're, you're actively searching for, you're seeking out, you're trying to find. Whereas notice is like, you know, I was just passively there and, and I didn't notice what was happening around me. And Jesus said, you, you're walking around and you're looking for sin in someone else's life. But you can't even notice in your own life this big issue that's actually, that's actually much more significant. That's the third thing for us to, to kind of carry away because that's a heart problem. That's a hard problem when we go around and we look for problems in someone else's life and we want to be the savior that fixes the problem in someone else's life instead of recognizing we've got stuff to work on in our own lives. And I want us to, I want us to recognize the, the reality behind this exaggeration. Right? Just because Jesus is exaggerating to make a point doesn't mean we, we must miss the fact that there is a speck in one eye and a plank in the other. The plank is much bigger than the splinter. The plank is a bigger problem than the splinter. Jesus says you need to be aware of the planks that you're carrying. And then he goes on. And he goes on into verse 4. And he says this. He says, how can you say to your brother, I mean, this doesn't make sense. How can you say, let me take the speck out of your eye, but behold, there's a log in your own eye. Right? This is about the whole ridiculousness of the situation. Like if there's a plank covering your eyes, there's a, there's a, one, there's a wonderful man in this church. I used to um, rent out of flats at his practice, his name's Kendry, and he's an ophthalmologist, right? He does delicate eye operations, right? He does serious high-grade stuff. It would be very awkward. I would not feel very comfortable if Kendry was operating on my eye and his face was covered by a large roofing truss. That would not be a good time. I don't think I would come out of that being able to see any better than I went in. I'd probably be worse. Jesus is saying, if there's a plank covering your face, then, then you have no ability to be able to see the detail that you need to be able to see to help someone remove a speck from their eye. You can't do it. It's impossible. Right? How, can, how can you even think that you, that's, that's something that you can do? And, so then he, and then he lands this thing with this conclusion that in, in verse 5. And he says, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. First take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly, and you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. Right? This, is, this is, I mean, the very obvious conclusion to what he's been kind of building up to. Right? Here's the formula. R remove plank from face, see clearly, then help someone else. Right? It's very simple. It's very easy. It's not genius stuff. Here's the trick, though. If you don't know that there's a plank in your own eye because you haven't noticed it, then you're going to try and fumble in someone else's eye and it's not going to go very well. 
That's why I included Galatians 6, 1 for us earlier, because I think it's really helpful for us in illustrating this conclusion that Jesus reaches. And so you can see it there in parallel. And, and I want us just to notice there are four things that Paul points out in this verse that I think are really helpful for us. And the first is this. Paul says the condition starts with the other person. He says, if there is someone who is already overcome by sin, you didn't go out on a hunting mission to find the problem in that person's life and then call their attention to it. They were very aware of it already. They've been overcome by it. One of the reformers back in the 17th century named John Calvin, um, he he did a lot of things for the church. Some of them were helpful, some of them maybe less helpful. But one of the things that he did, which I, I think he missed the boat a little bit, is uh, he was so zealous for the Lord, for people to be able to live out the righteousness that God had called them to, that they had Christians living in little communities at the time. And so Calvin had developed what he called the holiness police. Right? And there were a group of people who would go around with lanterns, and they would walk around from house to house in the evening, and they would peer through your window, and they would just make sure that how you were living was in line with what God had said. And you weren't sleeping with anyone who wasn't your wife, and you weren't shouting and disrespecting you know, your children or whatever it might be. Right? He, got, he got a little bit zealous. He, he got a little bit into the hunting out of the sin in your brother and sister. Secondly, Paul says this. Don't we lucky we don't do that today? Right, that would be a little scary. We'd do it cyberly as well, so you wouldn't even know. It'd be terrible. Right. Paul says it's, it's addressed to those who are godly. He says, those of you who are godly. He says, you need to check your own character first before, before you try and do anything else. And no one's saying you need to be perfect because very few of us are going to reach that point before we go to be with Jesus. Right. But, but to the best of your knowledge, can you come before God and say, God, I'm, I'm living this out with integrity and with as much righteousness as I'm aware of at the moment before you? Have, have you allowed God to hold you to the standard that you want to hold someone else to? Have, have you taken the time and said, God, am I, am I actually making it? Am, am, I, am I living up to this thing? Have you invited God into your own heart and asked Him to call out your own sin? David prays like this in in one of the Psalms, and he says, God, search my heart and know me, and call out any offensive way or sinful way within me. Show it to me, God, so that I can deal with it before you. Have have you done that with God? And and then have you prayerfully processed that with God and and moved to repentance? Because sometimes, sometimes we do this thing, we get so excited that God has spoken about something, and it's really wonderful, but where we forget to actually do something about it, that what we need to do. When God points out something in our life that is offensive to Him, the response is, okay, now I need to repent. Now I need to recognize I've been going this way and I've been doing this thing and that's been offensive to God. I need to turn away from that. I need to make a conscious decision to reject that and to move towards what God has called me to. That's what repentance is. I want to suggest if you, if you haven't done that in a particular area, whatever area, you might be seeing a speck in someone else's life. But if you haven't walked through that process, you're not yet ready to try and help them take it out. You need to do that with God first. Thirdly, Paul says, the way in which we help one another, it's about being gentle and it's about being humble. That's just about our motives. It's, we're motivated by a deep concern for our brother or our sister. It's not, it's not about pride. It's not about arrogance. It's not about doctrine. It's not about being right. 
It's about a love for the other person that so moves you that it breaks your heart when you see someone who's trapped in bondage and you just know that there's a freedom that Jesus has died for, that he so desires for them to walk in. That becomes the motivation of your heart. It's about recognizing that the only reason that you are in that freedom at the moment is because Jesus has been at work in your life and someone has come alongside you and they've helped you to overcome whatever you were struggling with and together with God and by his grace, you've been able to overcome the bondage that you were in and you're only stand because of his spirit that's with you it's about recognizing that it's not about you but it's about what god has done in you finally paul says it's about doing this carefully paul says just because you've got freedom praise god just because you've got freedom in this space doesn't mean you're immune doesn't mean you're immune to temptation. doesn't mean you're immune to the desires of your own sinful heart. It doesn't mean you're immune to the schemes of the enemy that are seeking to pull you in and trap you in again. So he says, when you go and help, be gentle, be humble, but recognize as well you need to be careful because you're not invulnerable. And you need to do this with a deep, deep, deep reliance on God and a dependence on the Spirit, and a humility that knows that the only victory, the only way I maintain victory and purity is because God is helping me. And I, I am weak. You know that saying, an unguarded strength is our greatest weakness. That's what Paul is warning us about. Think, don't be unguarded. Don't think that because you've had victory before, you're impenetrable now. Recognize that you always need the grace and the enabling of the Spirit to get there. I think that's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7 from 1 to 5 when he says, judge not, lest you be judged. And he's warning us against hypocrisy. He's saying, don't be a people that call others to a standard that you aren't living out yourself. I think he's calling us to be carefully self-reflective, to be recognizing the stuff that we need to be working through by ourselves, that we need to be working through with him before we try and help others. And he's calling us to deep and genuine humility, to recognizing that the only reason we are able to walk and live in a measure of freedom is because of the grace of God that's at work in our lives and helps us to be able to stay there. He's saying it's about a deep, selfless love for one another. It's not about elevating yourself over someone else, that you're the rescuer and they're the person to be rescued. It's about recognizing that, that you love them so deeply. And because God has come alongside you, you just want to come alongside, you want to help as best you can. And it's always, always, always about a deep, deep reliance on God and on the Spirit that He's given us. That's what I think Jesus is trying to tell us here. And there's not much more to say, so I don't want to talk for much longer. But you'll notice we've been talking about Matthew 7, 1 to 6, and we've only done 1 to 5. Right? Because I think Jesus kind of concludes his argument in five verses, and then he adds this extra verse on afterwards, which I think is a, it's one of those like wisdom sayings that he brings into his sermon at this point. And he says this in verse 6. He says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or else they will trample them under their feet, and they will turn and tear you to pieces. This verse is one of those interesting verses in Scripture. Conceptually, it's not really difficult to understand. Now, the principles are, are reasonably straightforward, but exactly why Jesus has included it in this part of his sermon, exactly how it relates to the long story we've just had about specks and planks and judgments, is a little bit open to interpretation. I just want to say three things about this to, to help us. Um, 
I think what, one of the things Jesus is trying to do here, and the reason that he, that he brings us into this space in his sermon, is he wants to tell us that we need to make sure that we don't make inappropriate judgments. And we don't make inappropriate judgments. You see, dogs, unfortunately, for those of you, like my wife, who really love dogs, right, dogs were considered unclean to Jewish people. So, so you couldn't take something that was sacred, something that was holy, something that was righteous, and give it to something that was unclean or unholy. That would be, that would be A, very inappropriate, B, deeply offensive to God. Right? It would be a sinful thing to give those two things to one another. It's also, you know, anyone have a teacup pig? Right? I know the ladies would probably love a teacup pig. Right, they're very cute. No matter how cute your pig is, you're probably not going to take your, your best string of pearls or your mom's best string of pearls and put it around the pig's neck. Right? Because no matter how much you love your pig, you don't dress it up in jewelry. Right? Joe, I know you love your animals deeply, right? but even Joe's not going to put pearls onto her animals. And Jesus is saying that, that would be wholly inappropriate. Again, pigs are unclean. And you don't give that which is holy, you don't take that which is beautiful and throw it to the pigs. They also can't appreciate its value. They don't really know what pearls are. Secondly, I think a thing for us to notice here, the fact that Jesus puts it here after verses 1 to 5 is, a, is to reinforce the idea that when he says, judge not lest you be judged, he's actually talking about judging rightly as opposed to not judging at all. Because it would be impossible for us to do verse 6. To det- we'd have to determine that which is holy and, and that, who's a dog or a pig. We'd have to make that discernment. We'd have to be able to discern what's an appropriate thing to do and what's an inappropriate thing to do. And so the fact that he adds it here after verses 1 to 5, I think probably lends force to the idea that he's speaking about making right and righteous judgment versus no judgment at all. Finally, I think it it appears here to demonstrate, because he wants to say to us that if you fail to discern rightly, if you fail to make right and good judgments, then there are going to be consequences that you're going to reap. Right? And, I mean, in, this, in the verse, he says, you give the, the pearls to the pigs. They're, gonna, they're not going to appreciate them. They're not going to understand them. But they're going to turn around, and they're going to attack you. If you fail to make a right judgment, if you fail to discern rightly, and you just kind of liberally give whatever is holy, whatever that is, if you don't make right judgments, there's a consequence that we're going to carry as believers out of that. And it's going to be unpleasant and potentially painful. I think that's all we need to say about verse 6. And that's all I, I want to say about what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 7, about the way in which we are called to judge one another. Judge is often a very negative word because it's often about speaking condemnation over others. I think Jesus is calling us to help one another and to gently call one another to righteousness, to be, to be deep in our humility, to know that it's only by the grace and the enabling of God to not stand from a position of, I've done it and, and you're a terrible person, but you know what? God has helped me and he's worked with me and I just want to work with you. And, I, and actually, before I even come there, I'm going to take time with God. I'm going to make sure that he's worked this thing through with me. You think we can be a community like that? You think we can help one another in the Lord, not speak down and look down at one another, but call one another up and love one another deeply and genuinely? Because I think that's the heart of what Jesus is saying here. That's how, how we're called to live together as disciples following a king. Let's pray together and let's ask God to be at work in our lives.
Oh, Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you have poured your Holy Spirit into us as your children. Because God, we recognize that without your Spirit and without your grace and the way in which you are helping us, we would never be able to do this. We would never be able to live up to the standard. We recognize already, God, how easy it is for us to make snap judgments, to judge by appearances, to get quickly offended. And your call to us, Jesus, is to be gentle, to be humble, to be gracious, to have deep and selfless love for one another, to judge rightly, to take the time to, to process our stuff before you and allow you to work in us before we try and be an instrument through which you work in others. And so, God, I pray for us. I pray for us as, that as a community, you would help us to, to really walk by the Spirit, to, be, to, to make judgments in the Spirit, to, to be careful before we jump to, towards pointing out something in someone else's life, but, but that, that we would come before you, God, and we would allow you to, to search us and to test us and to try us. And then, God, if, if we need to go, then in deep grace and with deep humility, then we can go. God, help us to be those kind of people. Help us not to, to look down on others, to be judgmental of others. Help us to call one another up and to walk alongside one another in selfless love as you did for us. We ask this in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.